Greetings and welcome to The Dividing Line. It is a Tuesday, probably, uh, I can't see how this wouldn't happen, uh, last program of the week. It's possible. I mean, I suppose I could get where I'm going and they're going to just have like awesome super internet or something. Uh, so, you know, I could sit up, I could, I, you know, it'd be great if I had like a, a neat backdrop of the Red Rocks or something like that. It, it, I'll, I'll take a look around. It, it's it's possibility. I mean, things could happen. Uh, it is 2020. Um but it's also October 6th, and it's a sad, sad day. It's a very sad day, because Eddie Van Halen has died. And what makes this particularly sad is that he was only five years older than Rich, who gets really old today. It's his birthday. So now forever, Rich's birthday will be associated uh, with with Eddie Van Halen, and I've never ever heard Rich use the name Eddie Van Halen personally, uh, so I'm not really sure that the association is relevant. But it is it is it is Rich's birthday, and Rich may have killed Van Halen. It's it's possible. Um, but uh, now, see now, I could remember Rich's birthday though I'd often forget it, uh, because we were so busy. Because it was always, it would always be right around the time of the October trip to General Conference, which we did for years. Years and years and years and years. Um, which isn't even happening, other than uh, virtually now. I saw a clip on Twitter. I'm wondering if it's from the virtual. I wonder, did they do that last weekend, or are they doing it this weekend? Was They did it last weekend, really. It was, a, it was a woman talking about this wonderful Mormon lady who had all these kids, and, but she drank coffee, and so she, was, she ruined her testimony and everything else and, and had to be restored to the Lord at the end of her life, but caused all these problems because she drank coffee. Um, word, word of wisdom, uh, those good old staunch, wear those temple garments 24-7 uh, Mormons uh, up there in uh, Utah. They're... <laughs> They're becoming a a, a minority uh, in in Utah these days. I can assure you that. But anyway, that's how I'd always remember Rich's birthday was. It was sometime around. Sometimes when we were up there, uh, I think maybe once or twice we may have told somebody at a restaurant that it was Rich's birthday, and so he got embarrassed or something. I don't I don't really remember. But um, yep. So it's that time of year, and. Uh, but this is a big one because uh, everybody admits from from this point on down, it's it, it, the, it the acceleration of the rock toward the surface of the Earth is is pretty impressive. Um, it, it it really really is. So. You have reached terminal velocity. That's right. It doesn't get any faster than now. Uh, it, the question is just how much altitude were you able to get before? the straight down part starts. So there, yep, that's, yeah, there you go. There you go. There you go. Uh, so yes. Um, happy birthday to, uh, to, to rich. Um, I tweeted this out and in light of something that was just tweeted to me, I'm very happy to see that someone has, um, filed suit on the basis of the inherent, unhealthiness of wearing masks um, saying that the the known dangers of bacteriological infection and things like that outweigh 
any minor positive uh, benefit uh, that is that is being forced upon us by wearing these face diapers. And so I was glad to see that. And yesterday I saw something that I had not seen before called the Great Barrington Declaration. I am assuming Great Barrington is a city. Otherwise, that's a little bit over the top. <laughs> Describing it as the great. It could be the good the perfectly sufficient Barrington Declaration, but I, I think it's a city. Um, but you can sign this. I did uh, because it's saying what I've said and what everybody with common sense has been saying for a very, very long time. But these are from infectious disease experts and stuff from around the world. Uh, they're not the ones that Facebook and Twitter like, so they'll eventually be taken down and censored and stuff like that. Uh, But uh, here's what the Great Barrington Declaration says. As infectious disease epidemiologists and public health scientists, we have grave concerns about the damaging physical and mental health impacts of the prevailing COVID-19 policies and recommend an approach we call focused protection. Coming from both the left and the right and around the world, we have devoted our careers to protecting people. Current lockdown policies are producing devastating effects on short and long-term public health. The results, name a few, include lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes. You mean people are getting fat. Fewer cancer screenings and deteriorating mental health, leading to greater excess mortality in years to come, with the working class and younger members of society carrying the heaviest burden. Keeping students out of school is a grave injustice. Well, unless they're getting homeschooled, and then it's going to be a lot better for them. Uh, Keeping these measures in place until a vaccine is available will cause irreparable damage with the underprivileged disproportionately harmed. Fortunately, our understanding of the virus is growing. We know that vulnerability to death from COVID-19 is more than a thousandfold higher in the old and infirm than the young. Indeed, for children, COVID-19 is less dangerous than many other harms, including influenza, and probably playing tag on the playground. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable, falls. We know that all populations will eventually read reach herd immunity, i.e. the point at which the rate of new infection is stable, and that this can be assisted by, but is not dependent upon, a vaccine. Our goal should therefore be to minimize mortality and social harm until we reach herd immunity. Remember that poor British guy? That that poor, I think he's probably working uh, in, a, in an infirmary on a far-flung British outpost in in the, the Antarctic now. But when COVID first hit, he was like in charge of stuff. And he said, well, no, we shouldn't shut down because we need to get herd immunity. Whoa! Like four days later, he disappeared. He's, he's gone. He's history. Um, <laughs> but he happened to have been right. As immunity builds in the population, the risk of infection to all, including the vulnerable... Okay. Yeah, where he said that. The most compassionate approach that balances the risks and benefits of reaching herd immunity is to allow those who are at minimal risk of death to live their lives normally, to build up immunity to the virus through natural infection. You know why this can't ever happen? Because too many of you have already been brainwashed to think that a, and we saw this last weekend, if you get COVID, you're dead. It's, it's Ebola. It's an alien plague. It's the, 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 the invasion of the body snatchers. It's whatever. You're going to die. And you believe it. You believe it. I, I, over and over again now, I, I 
went out and did a run this morning, passed by a guy on a bike. We were the only two people on the canal. We were the only two people anywhere near each other. Fully masked up. And we're not even talking a small mask. We're talking the big, you can barely see his eyes. Everything's covered, sucking air through that thing on a bike. Mask. And the only reason you do that is if you are absolutely panicked out of your mind. Because you've been watching CNN and MSNBC, and you now have burned into your retina all these people who have died, allegedly, uh, only of COVID-19. No one dies of anything else anymore. That, that, okay, actually, you know, like millions of people die of other things every day, but nobody ever talks about them. Or it's blamed on COVID-19. Uh, okay. Uh, through natural infection, while better protecting those who are at highest risk, we call this focused protection, which is what we've all been saying for a long time, but ignored. Uh, We're called the Tin Hat Brigade, if you dare say this. Adopting measures to protect the vulnerable should be the central aim of public health responses to COVID-19. By way of example, nursing homes uh, should use staff with acquired immunity and perform frequent PCR testing of other staff and all visitors. Staff rotation should be minimized. Retired people living at home should have groceries and other essentials delivered to their home. When possible, they should meet family members outside rather than inside. A comprehensive and detailed list of measures, including approaches to multi-generational households, can be implemented as is well within the scope and capability of public health professionals. Those who are not vulnerable should immediately be allowed to resume life as normal. Simple hygiene measures such as hand washing and staying home when sick should be practiced by everyone to reduce the herd immunity threshold. Schools and universities should be open for in-person teaching. Extracurricular activities such as sports should be resumed. Young, low-risk adults should work normally rather than from home. Restaurants and other businesses should open. Arts, music, sport, and other cultural activities should resume. People who are more at risk may participate if they wish, while society as a whole enjoys the protection confirmed upon the vulnerable by those who have built up herd immunity. October 4th, 2020, this declaration was authored and signed in Great Barrington, United States by... You can look up the Great Barrington Declaration, sign it yourself. If you'd like to sign something of simple common sense, it will go nowhere. And I'll tell you why it will go nowhere. Because the left is using this for political gain. And as long as it provides political power, and as long as you already have a sufficient number of people scared right out of their ever-living minds, why are you going to give it up? You're not going to give it up. That's the logical thing to do. That's what all sorts of doctors know you should do. But they're not the primary people. They're not the people that are going to be on CNN and MSNBC and, and things like that. So, Great Barrington Declaration just demonstrating that what has been said by a lot of us for a very, very long time um is is actually the logical thing to do and it's the scientific thing to do it's the medical thing to do but there you go there you go so we've got a lawsuit i'm going to follow that lawsuit very carefully uh of people who recognize uh that masks are bad for you uh remember i've i've mentioned to you before the pre covid study that not only demonstrated 97% penetration of cotton masks by viruses but a 40% increase in infection when you compare three groups, N95 respirator, medical grade, very difficult to breathe through, uh, cotton masks, and no masks at all. Which group had the highest infection rate? The people wearing the masks. That's the CDC website, May of 2020, Biggest study done to that point. I've never seen a refutation of it. Not once. I've seen people stand on their heads and 
and spin in circles going, well, but, you know, there might be two days in which we're not really symptomatic. And just trying to come up with anything to get around the fact that we're making ourselves sicker. We're killing people with this idiocy of face diapers. But it's all political. It's all politics. So there you go. There you go. We just um, just tell you tell you the way it is. Now, uh, would like to jump into a text and t- totally changing topic now. Just no no connection whatsoever <laughs> between face masks, um, anything like that at all. I want to completely change direction here. Uh, last uh, program of the week, probably, but who knows? Like I said, it could change. And I want to look at Mark 1.1. Now, some of you will remember that in uh, May of 2006, I debated Shabir Ali at Biola University in Southern California. That is the last time I have darkened (laughs) the doors of Biola University. And uh, so, anyway, uh, we had a great time that night. It was uh, it was it was a very good debate that started all the Muslim debates that have happened since then. And if you recall that debate, if you've watched that debate, maybe like Algo have watched it, you know, fourteen times or more, uh, you'll recall that one of the sexual variants that Shabir Ali made reference to is Mark chapter one verse one, and so. You'll notice um, in my accordance setup here uh, that I have the NASB, the English translation, and then I have the Nessie Allen 28th on the right-hand side. So the, the New, New American Standard says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But the Greek says, Archetu euangeliu, Yesu Christu, and then there is a single bracket around huiu theu. So, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, it's anarthrous, so there is no article uh, before between Christu and Huyu. Now, this is a well-known textual variant, and it has been discussed many times. Um, I have read, I think it was Wasserman and Gurry, I'm thinking, that they, at least they report on, I'm not sure if they did the work on it, where a preliminary level of CBGM, coherent space genealogical methodology analysis, was done uh, based upon published sources rather than the full uh, database that is available uh, to the folks at Munster. We should have the ECM of Mark, even now. I mean, it's. I was told in January of 2019 that it was done, so I'm not sure what's holding it up. I'm sure COVID has not helped in getting it done. I am in limbo until it comes out. And once it does come out, I'm afraid half the programs are going to have to be on textual critical subjects because I will have some work to be doing then. Anyway, um, the, uh, the, the point is that some sort of preliminary type of CBGM analysis has been done on Mark 1.1, and from what I have read, it weighs toward the longer ending, or the, le- the, the way the New American Standard has translated, and without the brackets in the NA28 uh, that, is, that is on your screen. 
Now, is there any question in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus is the Son of God? No, there really isn't. Um, don't you have the centurion confessing to Jesus? You, you do, but you have some liberals saying that 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 a centurion would have understand that sort of that is a son of God or a godly person or stuff like that. So someone can always come up with something. So it is not like this determines the view of the gospel of Mark, but it clearly is important. It is clearly important. And when people talk about the textual transmission of the New Testament, especially on the internet these days, you end up with a large portion of people basically saying, look, you know what? I don't know anything about it. I I read the notes, but I'm not sure who to believe. Um, it does seem like all the notes say the same thing as far as they, they note the same variants and stuff like that, but there's different ways of understanding them, and you've got the King James onlyists, and you've got the TR onlyists, and you've got you've got leftist liberals on the other side, and and you've got uh, people who you know, translate the NASB or ESV, and think are conservative Bible believing scholars that love the Word of God, believe it's consistent with itself, believe in inspiration, and yet they talk about these textual variants, and a lot of people go, my pastor doesn't talk much about it, and most pastors don't. And the reason for that is um, most pastors are uncomfortable with the subject. You can graduate from the large portion of theological seminaries today without a truly firm, comfortable grasp of the textual history of the New Testament. I'm not saying that nobody teaches it anymore, obviously. I'm not saying that. Um, But, you know, I can just tell you, I taught for a seminary once. We're right at the end of my time there. Uh, you could fulfill your Greek New Testament requirements in a Jan term class. Now, that's that means you're taking a Greek tools class. That means you're learning how to use Logos. Like you're not learning how to actually read the language, which means it's pretty tough for you to be taking any of the classes on textual criticism, which classically have required you to already know the language to begin with. Sort of important. So. Keeping all of that in mind, um, I understand the level of confusion. But here's what I want to address today. Um, I totally, completely spaced. Just had too many things on my mind, got into the into the zone, and I completely spaced to address one of the most important aspects of the debates over the course of the past weekend. And I want to apologize for that because that lessened the value uh, greatly of what it was that I, that I shared with you at that particular point in time. Uh, But we will hopefully change it here. The thing I did not address was something that truly concerned and bothered me during the course of the debate. And yes, it's connected to Mark one, one, we're going to look at it more closely here in a moment. And that was the repeated statement by Dr. Jeffrey Riddle that the manuscript tradition for the first 500 years of the New Testament is insufficient for the recreation of the text in the New Testament. 
That's what he said. He said it over and over again. He he had a particular focus, partly because of the emphasis that I have uh, upon these things. He had a particular focus upon the papyri, which he is frequently called the vaunted papyri. He has a very low view of the papyrological testimony. And the papyri, in general, are the earliest manuscripts. There are some papyri that are, that are later than some of the unseals we, unseals we have. P74, for example, is like 7th century. But when we're talking about the major papyri, we're talking about uh, P66, uh, P75, P72, P45. Uh, these are, uh, and, and of course, P46, the, the earliest collection of Paul's epistles. Uh, that date to the 2nd and 3rd centuries and give us an insight into the state of the text uh, from 100 years prior to the great unsealed text, the, 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 the parchment, the vellum manuscripts that we have in Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Alexandrinus, later on Washingtonianus, and, and things like that. But what was said repeatedly by the representative of the TR-only position is the... In essence, we cannot recreate the text of the New Testament. Hmm. So as I pointed out, I said, well, that would mean we cannot recreate the text of anything from antiquity because of any work from antiquity, the testimony that we have to the New Testament is earlier, wider, and greater than any other work of antiquity. So you can't trust what you have for any of the Latin historians, Greek historians, Pliny, Suetonius, doesn't matter. Plato, who knows? We have no way of knowing. Utter and complete skepticism. A skepticism far beyond that of someone like Bart Ehrman. As I've pointed out, Bart Ehrman has said, we, we know what the New Testament said. We're just tinkering with a few little things here, there, and everywhere. But we, you know, we, we, we'll never know with perfection, is what he would say. Um, but I, I remind people of the the program that he was on, an atheist program he was on, being interviewed about his book, um, Misquoting Jesus. And after he went through a couple of the standard variants, you know, the Pericopate Adultery, Long Writing Mark, whatever. Uh, the atheist is like, so, Dr. Dr. Herman, in light of all this, what do you think the New Testament was originally about? What was... What was its original storyline? And Ehrman's like, it was about Jesus as the son of God coming to die and rise again. <laughs> and he, he doesn't get it. He, he, you know, this atheist is thinking maybe this was about space gods from Kolob. Oh, that's a different group. Um, maybe it was about, you know, some sci-fi type thing to make a great movie. And Ehrman's like, no, it's it's the story that we we all know is the story of the New Testament. I mean, there there there, there might be some textual variants in in Mark chapter two, whether Jesus was angry or or whether Jesus died uh, um, by the grace of God or apart from God. In in Hebrews chapter two, there's a couple little things like that, but it, it doesn't really change the the storyline. It's not like some new story can be built out of it, and so. <clears throat> Even though Ehrman has his own kind of radical skepticism, remember that answer he gave to, in the audience question where, eh, well, um, if, if I wanted real certainty about the Gospel of Mark, then I'd need to have 10 notarized copies that, 
dated from within two months after Mark wrote it and so on and so forth type of, a, of, a, of an absurdity, which, of course, can't. his point was, can't do that. So he has that level of skepticism, which goes beyond the Academy. But he doesn't have a skepticism that says we, we can't even we can't even get close. We, we got no idea. Who knows? And as I said, he admitted, we have much earlier attestation for the New Testament than we have for any other work of antiquity. Quote, unquote. Excuse me, that's what he said. In our debate, you can go listen to it. So when the TR only guys start saying, well, we, we, can't, we can't recreate the text. Why does someone say that? See, when I hear that, I go, uh-huh. Someone has an authority that they're about to introduce us to. Someone is, is promoting something. And so they have to denigrate the quality, depth, breadth, early attestation of the New Testament manuscript tradition to make room for whatever it is they're trying to sell us. And in this case, it's this strange phrase, providential eclecticism, which, as I pointed out, is just another way of saying re-inspiration. How else are you supposed to define it? How else are you supposed to define it? If you call it providential, then God is actively involved in doing what? He's guiding the choices that Erasmus, Stephanus, and Beza made. Now, that means that when every one of those times where Erasmus looked at a text and went, oh, hmm, yeah, well, you know, it, it could be this and it could be that and, you know, maybe the shorter ending's better. In other words, he used the same methodologies that we use today in examining the text. And then he goes, I've said this, but I leave it to the reader. It could be that. It's up to you. That what he just happened to put in the text was exactly what the apostles had originally written. Not, not just what God was, quote-unquote, re-inspiring, but what the apostles had originally written. Because the only way for this providential eclecticism to work is if the result is identical to what the apostles wrote, even if there's no evidence of it down through history. So, providential eclecticism is a re-inspiration. It's, it's okay, um... The Reformation is happening. It's the biggest thing in church history. It's bigger than Nicaea. It's bigger than Chalcedon. Um, It's bigger than all that stuff. And so, I'm going to produce a... I'm finally, finally, I got around to providentially leading mankind to develop the printing press. And so, now's the time to provide the absolute inspired text and I'm going to do it. And so I'm going to providentially guide every single one of the choices. Even the thing about this, even down to what happened with the book of revelation. And as you know, Erasmus only had one manuscript It was not a free-running manuscript. It was a commentary in Latin. was missing some pages. He didn't do a good job pulling the text out. 
He made a bunch of mistakes, and he knew it, and he didn't care. He didn't care. So evidently, Erasmus was providentially made to not care about the canonical status of uh, Revelation. I uh, forgot a little something. (laughs) Sorry about that. Um, And so, he doesn't want to do the work to track down solid, sound Greek handwritten manuscripts for the book of Revelation for the next edition of his his Greek New Testament. And so he writes a note to his printer for the second edition says, go get the Aldine uh, version and uh, thank you and uh, whatever they have in theirs for Revelation correct mine to fit theirs. That's how little he cared. Well, that was providential. He was caused providentially to not care about what was Revelation. Here's the problem. The other guys were also caused to providentially not care about Revelation, so they just used his version. <laughs> so there weren't any differences because they had already borrowed from Erasmus. They hadn't done their own work either. One of the reasons of that is they were providentially so few manuscripts of Revelation especially in Greek. It's the book we have the fewest manuscripts of. And so, errors that that he knew about never fixed over five editions, because he thought they had been, and nobody was arguing about it. Nobody had access to enough information to even question it. And so those errors were promulgated, continued, and they're in the TR to this day, which means they were the original reading. Providentially. That's the answer to everything from the TR providentially. Which a Calvinist can do that for everything. I mean, because there is there is a broad, massive sense in which, yep, it's all a part of God's decree. But that's not an argument. And there is not a Calvinist school on the planet that has ever accepted as the consistent response to every question on every test. God did it. God did it. And yet, that's what people are telling us. God did it. That's that's where it came from. And so, whatever ends up in the TR, which includes the longer ending here, um, that is the inspired reading. In fact, let me just look at something really, really quickly here. Uh, there it is. Textus Receptus. Well, that's interesting. They have Huiyu Tu Theyu. So there is a uh, expansion. So you have Huiyu Tu Theyu in Mark 1 1. And I'm wondering personally. Uh, yeah, so you've got Huyu Tu Theyu Kuryu in 1241, so uh, I'm not sure if that's added or just what, that's an that's an odd one uh, so that's your, your majority reading with the, uh, with the article is, is what you've got there so that's what you have in the, uh, in the TR 
is the Son of God with an article included. Now, let's uh, let's take a look at something here. Uh, I brought up... Oops. Well, that's not going to work for me, is it? That's funny. You, you can only go to a certain... Uh, Certain one there. All right, then we'll go this way. Window. There we go. Thank you. All right. So here is Codex Vaticanus. Now, interestingly enough, someone, and I won't bother to dig back through my stuff to find out who it was, but someone this morning um, was basically saying that... uh, Anyone who would utilize or promote a Bible translation that includes Codex Vaticanus is a heretic. That is heresy. So um, what you're looking at, according to certain people on the Internet, is, um, is heresy, when it's actually simply one of the manuscripts, in all probability, that were copied after the Council of Nicaea, with funds that were provided by Constantine to help replace many of the manuscripts that had been destroyed by the Roman Empire only 15, 20 years earlier. And what you want to note here is you've got the big fancy alpha over here, and then you've got Arche to Yuangaliu, and then notice right here, it would be much better if this was on the full screen, but uh, Rich ran away. Um, I'm sorry? Oh, Amazon Man. Okay. Then notice, so here's, here's Evangelium, the gospel, and then you have what are called nomina sacra. So this is Yesu, and notice the line up above. So that's the two-letter abbreviation of Jesus, Christu, there's the line. And then here we have Huiyu spelled out. And then Theyu, there's the line for the nomina sacra right there. So, so notice what, what you have here in majuscule text, sometimes called unsealed text. That's a technical term. You have these upsilons. And you have a number of Omicron upsilons. So the end, this is a, a long genitive train. Okay? And so you have Omicron, Upsilon. Here's another Upsilon after Neota, then uh, Chi Upsilon. And then Huiyu, of course, begins and ends with an Upsilon and has two vowels in between it. And then Theyu. So that's a lot of Upsilons in a row. And so most of the discussion concerning this variant has not been focused upon the theology. The vast majority of textual discussion, especially up until Bart Ehrman in 93, assumed, and interestingly enough, even though Bart Ehrman wrote Orthodox Corruption of Scripture, he also has admitted that the vast majority of variations are not theologically motivated. He tries to say certain ones are. I think he fails at that in a number of different places. But the the point is that even he admits, in general, scribes really tried to do a good job. 
Beze is off by itself, and, and you've got this, that, or there, but in general, they did an amazingly good job. And so the most of the discussion has been, what would be, what about this line would cause the variations that we see amongst the manuscripts? Because, um, let me, um, don't go, don't go back to full screen. I got to go back to, okay, because if we look at the textual interlinear here, uh, for, I guess I'll have to go back to full screen. There we go. If we go back to the textual interlinear here for this reading, uh, over here is where we've got Huiyu uh, Theu, son of God. All right, and so then we come down to here. Here's Sinaiticus, and Sinaiticus does not have Huiyu Theu. You have Yesu Christu. So Arche to Euangeliu Huiyu Christu. But Vaticanus, Arche to Euangeliu Huiyu Christu, Huiyu Theu, son of God, Huiyu spelled out fully. Washingtonianus also has Huiyu Theu, and interestingly enough, Alexandrinus has Huiyu Christu to Theu, not to Huiyu Theu. Now, that would make perfect sense, to be honest with you. Because we English-speaking people might go, the of God? That doesn't make any sense. But in Greek, it would make perfect sense. Because in genealogies and things like that, uh, that would be a, a, a fully ex- acceptable and understandable form. That, that, that would mean the Son of God. You wouldn't have to repeat it. But it is interesting that you have, amongst these um, important manuscripts, early, early, early Manuscripts, first 500 years manuscripts. You have a lack of the word, then you have two huyus, and then you have uh, an article instead of huyu. But you'll notice how much the, if I hadn't pointed out, would your eyes immediately have recognized that Codex Alexandrus actually has a different reading? Because it's still two, and it, it looks a lot especially in that line of genitives, like we you, but it's two. All right? Now, one of the points I've been trying to make over the course of years, how you are listening to me right now says a lot about your level of confidence in how God has transmitted the text of the scriptures over time. There are people, and I understand there are people, but in this instance, there is nothing I can do about trying to help these people feel better about themselves. There are people who do not believe we should be looking at things like this. There are some people who say it's, um, it's nitpicking, straining out gnats. I had that used on Facebook today. Strain, straining at gnats. Doesn't matter. Who cares? Then there are others who are like, you should not talk about stuff like this as if if i don't talk about it then nobody else will either no i assure you other people will and they will in a context of unbelief 
And that leaves Christians sitting in a context of silence and ignorance. That's not a good thing. But there are people who really, really do not think that we should even be talking about this stuff. They don't want notes in their Bible. They don't want to know that Sinaiticus, and and these are our, our earliest sources. Again, we don't have the beginning of Mark. Wish we did. Maybe someday we will. But we don't have the beginning of Mark in a papyri, in any of the papyrus, papyri, in a singular papyrus. So these are our earliest sources. Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Washingtonianus, Alexandrinus. So we're looking at the at the earliest sources here, and there's a variant, and there's a difference. And there are people who are afraid of history. They are afraid of how God transmitted the text of Scripture. That's why they want something better in their thinking. They're, they don't, they don't, they've never thought this through. But they're literally saying, I want something better than what God provided in history. And they live in a day where they can pretend to offer something like that, because they live in a day that's half a millennium after the invention of printing in the West. And printing certainly helps to solidify a text, but now they live in a day of digital imagery. And so you can reproduce a text exactly. We Mankind could not do that until 1949. And certainly not in the digital way we do now until only a matter of decades ago. And so there are people living in this age. They want to go, I I want something better than what was provided to the church for the first thousand years or more. Where they had to regularly discuss differences in manuscripts, where everyone who wrote on this subject, Origen and Jerome especially, as two of the most um, focused individuals, recognized, well, as Jerome said, in his day, the best manuscripts didn't have the long writing of Mark. That's what he said. Eusebius said, said the same thing. By the time of Victor, that's starting to change. But that's what they said, and they, they didn't have access to anything like this. They couldn't compare manuscripts. They didn't have identification of manuscripts. They didn't have a catalog. There was no central location that kept track of these things. Would have made things a lot easier, but they didn't have it. We do now. And so now we have to take advantage of all the information we have, or you just throw it all out. As someone said... Uh, after the debate, well, it seems like what one side is saying is you should just burn all the manuscripts that have been discovered since the TR was published. Because as far as it having an impact on the reading of the New Testament, that's true. That that would be the logical result. I mean, what good are the vaunted papyri to Dr. Riddle? The only, the only time he's going to make reference to the vaunted papyri is when he can try to twist P46 into a support for the reading of Koinonia at Ephesians 3.9, which it cannot be. So, if, it, if the papyri disagree with TR, and they do, then how are they even useful? Why, why should they not, just simply not be destroyed? 
Good question. I mean, Dr. Riddle will say, oh, I'm not against the study of these things, but I just want to go, but why? Why study these things? What, what good does it do? What, what positive thing does it add is what I want to know. Outside of, I, I guess they could argue, well, it's an example, a warning of the corruption that can happen to the scriptures. I bet you that would probably be one of the type of things that would be argued. I don't know. The point is, we're looking at the earliest sources for Mark. And if we are people of truth, we're going to speak the truth about what's there. We cannot avoid that. We cannot avoid that. So when we go uh, back, yeah, it just won't do that. (laughs) I wish it would. Okay, get rid of that. And uh, this is the old-fashioned way of doing it. There might be a way to do it. Here is Vaticanus, and yes, it has huiyu theyu. It has the long ending without the article. So it has son of God. And this has not been inserted at a later point. I mean, the whole, uh, uh, you can tell by where the letters are in the line and so on and so forth that this is where it's always been. You'll notice the next line has been written in Isaiah, the prophet. That becomes another important textual variant that we'll look at another point, I suppose. Let's look over at Codex Sinaiticus. Man, I had trouble with this. This, When this, this website first came out, was so exciting. So exciting. The problem is, that was a long time ago, and they haven't been keeping up with the coding at all. <laughs> so it is a stick and a rock now. Um, but anyway, here's Codex Sinaiticus. Here you have Kata Mark on, according to Mark. Uh, RK to Yuangeli Una. Notice again in majuscule text. All, all capital form letters is what we would call them. Basically no punctuation, no spacing between words. And so you can break words at places we would never break words. So, yuangeli-u. And the problem is that actually adds to the issue because now you have the genitive ending starting a line of what would have been genitive endings. But you notice, Yuangaliu, Huiyu, Christu, and then it moves on. Just as it is uh, written in the prophets. But I blew it up, and I'm not sure if I can. Um... No, I can't. I guess I can't blow it up anymore. Um, right here. If you look real carefully, someone has written in Huiyu four letters. So they're using the Nomina Sacra with the line over top. So a correction has been made to the manuscript and and included Huiyu Now, what that means is that when you utilize something like... Uh, Come on. How do you get this thing out of... (sighs) Okay, 
uh, only, only way only way out of this one is massive destruction. Just close them. Uh, it's just when you use something like the um, Nestle Allen text or something along those lines, uh, and you look at the variance. Here is where it'll have the variant. Let me blow it up so you can see it. Notice what you have here. You have Sinaiticus, asterisk, that's the olive, Sinaiticus 1. So what they're saying is that the, the um, omission is found in the original hand of Sinaiticus, and that's what we saw. But then the first corrector has added the text, Huiyu uh, uh, Theu, in. And so, on the part of the editors, the assumption is that that was first corrector, which may have been concurrent with, at the same time, first reader of the manuscript when it was produced in a scriptorium. Because the, the handwriting is similar, though it's much, much smaller. Some of the corrections we see elsewhere, completely different ink, completely different handwriting, happened at much later time. There's entire books about the various correctors of Sinaiticus and things like that. Um, but that's what the one and the asterisks or a two or, or things like that uh, indicate when you see something along those lines. So, uh, there's the evidence. And... It doesn't change a whole lot. Now, it is interesting to me. I, I, there is one thing that I'm I'm confused about here. If you don't mind my, if you don't mind following along with me here, um, and that is that this that the Nestle twenty eighth is telling us that the reading of Alexandrinus, that's Codex A, is Huiyu Tu Theu. But when I go to the transcription, it's Tutheu. And when I go to the um, image, there is no Huyu there. No, there it is. No, there, no it is there. That's what the picture shows, but the that's interesting. The transcription does not does not have it there. Now that's interesting. I will have to submit a note to uh, accordance to fix the transcription because the transcription is off at that point. Um, so there you go. It is there. Huyu to Theu. So there is the addition of the article before Theu. In Codex uh, Alexander's. Now, there are people who uh, will look at this and say, "See, nobody can know because they are not accustomed to dealing with anything from antiquity." In fact, a lot of these people are not even accustomed to dealing with <laughs> the stories I've told about some of the papers I wrote in college and how you had to copy stuff out of books and you had to, you had to buy stuff like this. 
Uh, this was uh, really cool. I think they still exist, but a place called Levenger. And it's a, it's a book weight, and it's for holding books open. And you had to do that so you could hold a book open so that you could copy uh, the book. And that meant going back and forth your eyes, and you would learn very quickly the kinds of errors you can make. If, if all you've ever done is cut and paste then you need to realize that the world is a whole lot different in the past and the not-too-distant past. But there are a lot of people who are very, very uncomfortable with the recognition of these things. And so what they're willing to say is, A, we can't reconstruct the text. They've never really tried, but they come to the conclusion because their difference is we can't, and therefore we need a new inspiration. We need, since, since my mind can't wrap itself around how for 1,500 years Christians dealt with this and it didn't cause them to lose their faith, it's going to cause me to lose mine. Therefore, what I'm going to do is I'm going to ignore all of this stuff. I'm going to push all the history off to the side. And I'm going to grab hold of one thing. Now, for the King James onlyist, it's King James version of the Bible. For the TR onlyist, it's the TR, which it's interesting to me. The vast majority of them still end up being King James only too, as far as the, the translation they use. I, if I was TR only, I'd at least use the New King James, but no, normally it ends up being King James. So this is the mindset. I I cannot allow the historical reality of what you're showing me on the screen. And so I'm going to grab hold of an objective, unchanging standard. I'm going to ignore how it came into existence. I'm going to ignore its own history. And I'm going to make it the standard. And if you keep pointing out what its history was, I'm going to say you're arguing like an atheist. May I suggest something to you? The skepticism that Jeffrey Riddle expressed was much more like the skepticism of atheism than anything I would ever express. I believe that the New Testament manuscript tradition is fully capable of telling us what the apostles wrote. Jeffrey Riddle doesn't believe that. In fact, this entire... One of the things I like about the Tyndale House, even though I, I disagree with it, for example, the John one eighteen, but one of the things I like about this is that if a reading is going to appear in the main text of this, it has to be witnessed within the first 500 years. Well, that means that the manuscript tradition has to be sufficient in the first 500 years to tell us that. Well, thanks be to God, it is. Oh, but we have thousands of manuscripts later. Yeah, as you would expect. I mean, shouldn't you have more manuscripts from 500 years ago than from 1,500 years ago? I mean, isn't that sort of logical? It is. It is. But the skepticism of the tier-only position that was enunciated, it says we... 
those those early manuscripts, the papyri and the uncials and and even the even the early Byzantine manuscripts, it's just it's just not enough. Why isn't it enough? We weren't told. We weren't told. But my guess would be because of the standard that's being used. The standard is, and this is what you hear all the time, both from King James Onlyus and T.R. Onlyus, well, you have to have absolute certainty about the reading of every single text. There can be no questions. And don't remind me that Christians had lived with that for 1,500 years before Erasmus. And don't remind me that Erasmus would have laughed heartily if he had ever known what his own Greek New Testament would be turned into by the TR-only movement. I mean, it's, it's sort of like how Dean Burgon could never be a member of the Dean Burgon Society. Because <laughs> he didn't believe the things that Dean Burgon Society believes. Um, and it's the same thing here. Er- Erasmus would, would have scoffed at this position. He would have said, did you read anything I wrote? Did you read my annotations? Did you see how many times I said, might be this, might be that? I don't know. It's up to you. And you've now turned what I did into an autograph? What? He wouldn't have even had a category to put such such an action in. But again, once you get the... Yeah, but the Reformation was so important. Remember, Erasmus didn't join the Reformation. But the Reformation is so important, and and so the text that came out of it, they must have done all this work. Well, they didn't. It was the default text. It's what they had. They th- There was no ability. The Academy had spoken. <laughs> as much as they disliked the Academy, Erasmus and Stephanus and Beza were the Academy. And the Academy spoke, not the Church. There weren't any councils. There wasn't anybody sitting around going, oh, no, it must be koinonia, not oikonomia. They didn't even know there was a difference. They weren't even aware of it. They didn't even argue about it. It was the default text. But that's what was providentially given. And once you buy that, all this looking at Son of God and CBGM and all the rest of that stuff doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You've got You've got already got your answers. You've already got your answers. But that kind of skepticism is horrifically destructive because you send a young person into the university setting and you you mix this deadly cocktail in their thinking of the New Testament manuscript tradition is insufficient in and of itself to recreate the text. So therefore, God did it using Erasmus and Beza, primarily, without their knowing it. And that's how you're supposed to defend your text of Scripture against the attacks of all of the children of Bardermen. Yeah, there you go. That kind of skepticism is not only unwarranted, it's extremely dangerous. Extremely dangerous. Now, I have been informed, I have been told, that um, at least in those 
you know, for example, that I've invited people to call in. Well, they'll comment in their private Facebook groups, but they won't say anything to me. And they won't call in. And I've challenged people who have said things publicly and then discovered, well, they responded and mocked me in their private groups, but they wouldn't stand up and do that to me. Just a waste of time. Gets a little dangerous when people who claim an orthodox faith then begin to behave in this fashion. The nastiness, of course, being sent my direction is astonishing. But I understand why. I'm challenging. When, when, when you literally have the leaders of this group confusing the foundational presuppositional validity of the necessity of the triune God for human knowledge with the textual readings of the Textus Receptus, which is what Jeffrey Riddle does. So in their mind, the two things are the same. They're of equal value, equal weight. They are not. They are not. No rational person can think they are. But once you buy that idea, where else can you go? And what must you think of me? I mean, if you... I've heard some of these young men especially saying, I am so glad that I don't have to look at those notes anymore and I don't have to worry about this, that, and the other thing as if everybody's always worrying about that type of thing. But I'm so glad that I don't have to do that anymore. And if I'm basically saying to you, you've traded truth for certainty. You've you've done what non-Christians do. You've, You've taken the lazy path. You really have. Well, you can either sit back and go, well, well, have I? How, how would I know one way or the other? What questions could I ask? You know, what, what if I, you know, how, how can this be presented outside the Christian faith to others? I mean, shouldn't our faith be defensible in that way? If you're not willing to do that, then the only thing you can do is to respond emotionally to the person bringing you the message that's challenging you. And he's terrible. So I, I, I've seen out in some of the public comments. Yeah, I just can't stand white. So there's this one guy who says, I, I don't like white. So I just, I just wrote back to him, have we ever met? Wrote back, no. <laughs> okay. There you go. I mean, the thought crossed my mind. And what exactly do you know about me? Why, why would you make this kind of comment in the... Uh, in, in, in a public, what did that do for you? But I thought, yeah, we'll, we'll pass. Because it's just, there's just so many people that I would be doing that with right now. Because that's the emotional thing. And this isn't new. I cannot see outside of the extra layer of Koine Greek. I cannot see any functional difference between King James onlyism and TR onlyism. As long as you have the onlyism part, I don't see it. There's any difference. Functionally, they end up coming to the same place. They argue in the same way. They both promote rampant skepticism about the New Testament manuscripts, and they all have the same problems. Um, and their their advocates end up arguing in the same ways. Which you know, initially, when you first run into TR onlyism, or at least you know, TR preferred. That's different. TR only gets weird. 
yeah 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 really gets 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 strange and so there you go so i wanted to bring up that issue because it was extremely important uh on the uh in regards to skepticism that is something that we you know i if you saw the debates you know i jumped on that and i did so with vim vigor and vitality shall we say because that needed to be challenged that needed to be challenged big time and hopefully i was able to do so even in the uh, the brief amount of time that uh, that we had so hopefully that's helpful to you i know there are some of you weirdos out there that just love looking at greek manuscripts and nomina sacra and uh and stuff like that and uh, but you're in the minority i hate to tell you uh, you are in the minority, but it is, I think, important to look at these things, be aware of their existence, and to recognize that textual variation comes about as an artifact of the mechanism that God used to preserve the scriptures. I do believe that God has preserved the scriptures, but he didn't do so with a photocopier. If God had wanted to preserve the scriptures the way the TR-only people say that he has, he would have invented the photocopier about 1900 years before he did. You want to talk about providence? It's God's providence that we didn't have photocopiers until 1949. So if you want photographic reproduction, then take it up with God. Instead, God had the text of the New Testament distributed freely and widely so that it was never under the control of any one group and could not be controlled in its transmission, and hence could not be redacted and edited in its transmission. Free transmission versus controlled transmission. I realize the vast majority of Christians are never going to have an argument or a debate with a Muslim on the methodology of the transmission of the text in the New Testament versus that of the Quran. That doesn't make it any less important. And to be consistent in how we respond to atheists and skeptics and Muslims and Buddhists and Hindus and obviously our Muslim friends and all the cults and isms within the broad pale of what is called Christianity including the Mormons, who have all sorts of weird ideas about how the Bible is transmitted over time. We have to be consistent in not only how we respond to each one of those groups, but then when you begin to exchange with those groups and learning about those groups, then we need to be consistent in how we deal with their scriptures as well. And I see TR-onlyism and King James-onlyism as a complete capitulation. I had somebody saying, but I've, uh, I think it was Nick Sayers, saying, I've witnessed to, to, to Muslims. Has nothing to do with what I'm saying. Nick Sayers could not hear me say the sky is blue without saying, yeah, but aren't there some clouds? <laughs> he couldn't. The man cannot hear a word I have to say accurately. Cannot do so. I never said that TR-only people don't witness to Muslims. What I said is they could not consistently debate Muslims and engage in a criticism of the Quran and defend the TR the way they do. 
Isn't that a clear statement? Why misrepresent it? Why not be able to hear what I'm saying? And say, well, I know people like that believe in the TR and they witness to Muslims. So? That's not what I was talking about, is it? It's not what I was talking about. It's a different thing. Different category. Huh. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. Hope that's useful to you. Um, like I said, we'll see about later in the week. And like, if something really big and huge, massive happens, I'll try to find some way of doing something. And you're going to be around this week anyways, aren't you? You're, you're working on... you. Oh, and now what was it? What was it that uh, that came today? Well, what's what, why is there no rich cam on Rich's birthday? Why is there no rich rich cam on Rich's birthday? It's called the Samsung Flipboard. I don't I don't see a, I don't see a rich cam on it. Okay, anymore. you gotta have a uh, all right. there. I am. Oh, there you, uh, you happy doing? birthday! Right, da, 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 da. Okay, yes. it's called the Samsung what? Flipboard. Flipboard. Yes. And it's it's sort of like what the like the, it's supposed to be really really cool. All I know is it's really really big and it's really really heavy. Oh, okay. So all right, it may take three of us to put it up on the stand. But the idea is uh-huh. that I'm going to be able to like put Codex Sinaiticus up there and yes, draw stuff all over it. You'll have your own textual variants. Blow it up and. <laughs> Do all yes. sorts of stuff like yes. that, and all and, kinds and, of fun things. We could take pictures of the Quran and, yeah. and put that up there. Well, and... I don't know. Do we want to do that? Oh uh, yeah. Cool. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There you go. That'll that'll be fun. So Rich is going to be um, playing with stuff, and uh, we're going to try to get. Uh, you know, it it may develop over time. You know, uh, the the first time we use the new studio may not be as fully fancy as it's going to end up eventually being um what yeah given the fact that you know we just added more construction things onto the room um you know right yeah we're trying to get it done as soon as we can but right you know, right yeah we also want it to be really nice yeah but i could see us doing some dividing lines in there uh especially when i if i was going to do, be doing a teaching thing you know this would this one would have been a, a a cool one to do along those lines you know to use that board and to... yeah i was well i was, i said to rich for the program why don't you just go you're good at this we got 7 minutes just put it up on here and plug it in and Okay, so since we're talking about this yes. okay so think about this you you take the corner you wheel it in over there right all right, and then you put the new cameras there, which can they have servo motors, and so I could follow you over there. You could do your thing and sit down and stand up. These things are stationary; they don't move. Right. So when you turn your back or when you go in different places, they don't go anywhere. And but those we can control. And right. So it, yeah, there's we we've got some versatility things we can do. Yeah, we do it in here or in there. <clears throat> yeah, we we'll, could do it out of the street. We'll see. We will see. I might have to start. Paying more attention to what I wear on uh, certain days of the week. <laughs> not sure. Not sure that's all that good. I used to be able to wear whatever I wanted to wear when I came to do the dividing line because there wasn't any stinking cameras around. We had ceiling tiles on the wall. We had a we had a we had a bookshelf over there that could have fallen over and killed me at any point in time. Wouldn't have passed any safety inspection anywhere on the planet. You could just you blew on that thing and it wobbled. <laughs> It was the prototype, and it was not a good prototype. 
But we used it, and I don't know how many years it was over there, but uh, that's sort of how it worked. But anyway, all right, enough of us just yammering at each other. Happy birthday again, Rich. We'll see you all uh, either later in the week or early next week, one of the two. God bless.